Apple presents events at the Apple Store. All right, let's go ahead and give it up for our moderator tonight, Nigel Smith. Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming out. Uh, this is actually IndieWire and Apple's last Tribeca talk, so let's give a round of applause for this awesome talk series that Apple and IndieWire set up. It's been a great success, and uh, thank you all for coming out today. So for our last chat, we're going to be talking to the director of a wonderful documentary that's coming out this Friday. His name's Kevin Pollack, and the film is fantastic. So we're going to run a trailer uh, for his documentary, and then we're going to talk about Misery Loves Comedy. I'm proud to be a comedian. It took me a really long time to take out the word American and put comedian. <laughs> There's nothing like getting a laugh from people. It's the narcissist fantasy. It's easily the single craziest thing that I have ever done in my life. No one knows but us what we go through. And it's my job to sit there and yell at drunks. You can do whatever you want. You can yell, you can spit. It's great. You can do that publicly. Comedy is a drug. I was connected with these thousands of people around the world. And they were just like, we know you're making this up as you go along, and it's not good. It went from them loving me to them hating me. I came crawling back after being chewed up and spit out by this goddamn town. Is there a way to explain why any of us chooses being the center of attention as a career? I realize I'm not good at sports. I get picked after disabled kids. Being funny is also a way to balance out people picking on you. I got beat up a lot when I was a kid, and then I turned into a joke. The first time I ever bombed, my fight-or-flight instinct kicked in, and evidently it was flight. When you're solo up there and you get the laughs, it's like crack cocaine. Rock em, crack, rock cocaine. I heard a thump, and somebody threw their prosthetic leg on stage. The crowd was just as astonished as I was. Comedy is really taking dissatisfaction and discomfort and spinning it. And let's just hope it doesn't get weird. You have to nourish a delusion. People don't know when to stop. They're showing the angst of humanity. I'm stupid. My life is awful. It's not for me. I'll never be funny again. There has to be something wrong with you. <laughs> 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 Now, please welcome Kevin Pollack to the stage. Thank you, thank you. Please be seated. <laughs> so, Kevin, welcome to Tribeca. Thank you so much. Where do these things go? Up here, okay? Yeah, yeah. I'll put mine up Phone there, Phone on stun? Why not, right? How so is everyone? Good? Uh, I'm so thrilled to be here, and I'll tell you one of the main reasons... I've been on the Apple Teat since the original tower in 84. The Apple what? Teat. Teat. Oh, yeah. really? Sucking on the teat? Yeah. Uh, so I'm proud to uh, have my <laughs> film somehow bring me to an Apple store. Yeah. So your film uh, is already available on iTunes, talking about Apple. Yep. We, uh, yeah. we, we open it in a couple of days. We, we climb to number one. Uh, yeah, on number one documentary. That's awesome. And um, racing up the independent charts. iTunes is yeah. a wonderful thing. Congratulations. Thanks, man. So it's film... shocking, I'll be honest with you. I don't really? mean to act like it isn't. With like, your cloud uh, behind is... it? Oh, you know. It, no, it, there's so much content. Yeah. It's unbelievable. To make any sort of dent and to land with anything other than a thud <laughs> just feels incredible, yeah. honestly. I'm sure a lot of that has to do with all the comedians and the actors they have featured in this movie. It didn't help. I mean, it didn't hurt. Yeah, it didn't hurt. Uh, when uh, Jimmy Fallon retweeted 
to his 24 million followers. I'm not going to lie to you. It didn't hurt a damn thing. Is that why you put him in the movie? Did it, he have to sign it was the only contract reason. Well, saying, yeah. I will tweet I, you know, about this movie? He's got The Tonight Show, but yeah. he's got 24 million followers. That means the more. Um, yeah, no, it's insane to get all these people to say yes. By the way, anybody budding filmmakers out there who are wondering how you get all these famous people in your movie, don't pay them. <laughs> it's just that simple. Uh, laughter, joking aside, by not paying them, you don't have to deal with their agents, managers, lawyers, and publicists. Oh, my. You just... Uh, we well, have to have their email, technically, but otherwise, that's all you got to do. Not but pay them. Did you go to their homes? No, uh, we used a of lot couches. of different sets. Okay. My home is used a few times. We shot it in New York for a week at various homes wherever we could get in. Caroline's on Broadway. We shot a little bit. You see the Jim Gaffigan shot. He's there, um, and then people's homes, but not necessarily the talent who was smart enough to, not to let us into their homes. Yeah. Uh, and then three weeks in a row in L.A., four weeks consecutive, whoever we could get, we got. Uh, when we started shooting, we had 25, thrilled, figuring I'll spend an hour with each. It's 25 hours. That should be enough to carve a 94-minute movie out of. But people kept saying yes while we were shooting, and we ended up with over 60, which is almost 70 hours of footage, which wow. uh, for me alone in the editing bay for 10 months. Well, you cut Trying to yourself? figure out what the hell this movie was. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I, had, I got a, a friend uh, with... Two Academy Awards for visual <laughs> effects. Uh, Robert Legato, he won for Titanic and Hugo. But he'd been shooting second unit for Scorsese since The Aviator. Wow. And doing all the visual effects. And he's a good enough friend that he agreed to help edit initially to try to find some sort of yeah. template. And we put together a little 10-minute thing. Brought it to Sundance 2014 for the... Uh, production company, Heretic Films, that was one of the co-financers of this. But that helped, and then I had to go off on my own and uh, spend all that time taking 10 minutes and making it 94. Yeah. And then I brought in a great editor, Dylan King, to help with all the transitions okay. from chapter to chapter and make it look a little more slick. But um, yeah, I, I could still be cutting the film because there was no script and no, no narrative to work from. Mm -hmm. Just the horrible decisions I made and then <laughs> fixed yeah. for 10 months until they said, you've got a deadline to submit to Sundance. And thank God, because otherwise there's no correct answer on how to do this. Yeah. Just, you know. Well, I can't wait for the DVD. I mean, geez, the deleted well, scenes that you're going to have are No, we're, 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 we're figuring out how to assemble, repackage uh, the tremendous amount of footage we have in terms of is it a series? Is it a, a, yeah. a you know, 20 episodes, 5, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever it is. Uh, for now, we're launching the film and ridiculously excited about it. Well, you brought up Sundance. Let's talk about Sundance. The film first premiered there to great acclaim and got picked up by Tribeca Film, who's now distributing it at, yeah, uh, in January at this year's festival. Um, you know, you're a first-time documentary feature filmmaker, legendary comedian, actor. Well. But were you still nervous? <laughs> he is. Um, Legendary. Yeah. No, but you are. Sound like my mother. Oh, <laughs> um, in my generation. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, Thank you. But going going into Sundance, were you were you a little scared, a little nervous about unveiling well, your your film? Being accepted into that festival for the premiere of your directorial debut is the goal line. That's the victory. Yeah. It's a calling card you take with you. Hopefully, to your next job quickly, or just tell everyone who listen. Uh, so that really was the victory, just to premiere there. So I wasn't nervous. I was excited as hell to see it with an audience. 
I'd seen it with a couple of friends over the house. I set up a friends and crew family screening in L.A. for 100 people. But I really didn't know what I was going to have. Just like a comedian puts together an act, the old saying is, we'll play in Peoria. You've got to take it on the road and see what people think. Yeah. So that was the other exciting thing about Sundance was the first time it was with a le legitimate so-called audience. Mm -hmm. And then uh, my hometown of San Francisco Sketch Fest shortly thereafter with an even larger audience of the uh, historical landmark theater there, Castro Theater, for maybe 1,200 people. Wow. Which was extraordinary. And now tonight will be its very next public screening, and I'm, I'm beyond excited. That's awesome. Yeah. Do you know where it's screening tonight, which theater? I do, but I'm not going to tell you. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> it's sold out anyways, I'm sure. It's, a, it's on my iPhone. Yeah, okay. SVA. Well, that's a, that's a good house. Yeah, what he said. It's a great house. Why don't we unpack why you made this movie in the first place? I know it's kind of a general question, but I'm um, just curious. What inspired you? No, I, uh, it was brought to me. Okay. Uh, a woman named Becky Newall was developing an idea to do a documentary about comedians specifically who suffered from clinical depression. She spoke to a producing partner of mine, Burton Ritchie, with Heretic Films, that was developing a script of mine for me to direct. She mentioned the premise, and she had the title, Misery Loves Comedy, Great Play on Words. And then he said, well, I know this guy. He wants to direct. He's been a comedian his whole life, professionally for 35-plus years. He's been hosting his own chat show on the Internet for five years at that point. Now we just celebrated six. So he's got interview skills, and he can book talent. And he wants to direct, as I said, what else do you? And she said, yes. And they brought it to me, and I said, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. And then started making calls and emails and, and then just held on. And here we are. Here we are. Yeah. Well, let's show everyone a uh, clip from the film to give them a taste for Why don't we? what it's like. Uh, we have an interview with Tom Hanks, I think, it's featured that in this hack. book. That hack. Do you want to set it up at all? I, um, he's in the film a few times, so I don't know if this is where he talks about actually doing stand-up comedy, which you saw in the trailer that he likened to crack cocaine, <laughs> or if he talks about living in self-loathing darkness for 54 years. There's a lot of revelations and insights into people who we think are just funny and normal, and they're not. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know which one of those it might be. I think be. it's the first one. Oh, all right. I think. When you're alone and you're solo up there, and you can modulate them, and you get the laughs, and you can build on it, you can go back and forth, and you can, the power of like uh, calling back something and having them, it's like you're, you're, you're the one-man show. And it, you, the adrenaline and blood shoots through your head in a way that I think is identical to, uh, to uh, Crystal Meth. Yeah. I would do gigs, I would do a shot at 12.30, and at four o'clock in the morning, I still can't figure out why I'm not asleep, because <laughs> it had just shot through, you know, the adrenaline shoots through you. Were there any big revelations made by any of these people that you documented that really, really surprised you? And if so, uh, which, which ones? Yeah, the, the film is 94 minutes out of 70 hours, so the truth is they're all the revelations and surprising moments that are in the film now. Yeah. I, I tried to focus more on those than general insights, general information. I tried to really hone and hone and hone down to the more revelatory and, and, and hilarious. You know, when you ask funny people about misery, they can't help but be funny. Yeah. <laughs> so I cut it as a comedy. It's way more funny than not, uh, according to the live audiences, not according to me. Um, it's a ridiculous subjective art form. 
So you need an audience to tell you what's funny. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's definitely a comedy. Thank God. <laughs> Did you screen it for any of the comedians that appear in it? Did you host a big... No, I've sent them links, and a few have come out to, you know, uh, Kevin Smith, Lisa Kudrow flew out to Sundance for the world premiere, Kevin Smith, um, Scott Ackerman, Janine Garofalo, and Dana Gould, who are all in it. Yeah. We're at the San Francisco Sketch Fest. Tonight, Jim Norton and Lewis Black will be there as well as uh, part of the Q&A afterwards. Okay. So, you know, whenever people can make it. Yeah. Is you know, I, I, at some point, I'm, I, I don't want to keep hawking these people. <laughs> I begged them to be in it, you know, and then I have to beg them to help promote the pre-order <laughs> on iTunes and then beg them again, please tweet, you can get it now. And then at some point, you just want to leave them alone. <laughs> the film's been divided into chapters, yeah. uh, you know, based on the questions that you ask. How did you come about dividing it into those chapters? Well, to give it some sort of form and a three-act structure and an actual narrative, uh, it made sense to create these chapters that represent the sort of arc trajectory from Who's Your Daddy and or Mommy, where it talks about were your parents supportive or not, um, through losing your amateur status, um, the Brit who stole from Spinal Tap and other influence, where Steve Coogan talk, talks about taking a riff from Michael Keaton, oh, excuse me, Michael McKean mm -hmm. from Spinal Tap, who himself is doing a mock English accent. <laughs> but the British Steve Coogan got a riff. It, it's meta. Yeah. And, uh, and then putting in your 10,000 hours, bombs away, talking about bombing, um, and so on. And so you started to get this ebb and flow of the life and the choices. You know, uh, children suffer from hey look at me disease because they're children they need attention but adults suffer from hey look at me disease also otherwise Facebook wouldn't be a multi-billion dollar company yeah <laughs> clearly we need attention but who chooses hey look at me as a career and all the rejection that comes with that who chooses and needs that attention as a profession that's a sick fuck <laughs> And you're one of them. Yeah. <laughs> Why did you choose it? I'm just curious. It, I was young and uh, I was collecting comedians that I saw on TV like my friends were collecting baseball cards. I was just fascinated by standing there and telling stories and being funny and everyone going crazy. And uh, Natural Born Ham clearly needed to be that person, you know? Yeah. My parents brought home a comedy album and I saw them lose their shit listening to some voice coming from the stereo hi-fi. A seven-foot-wide piece of furniture. Compare that to the Nano. Uh, everything comes back to Apple, no matter what I do. <laughs> Is the Nano still a thing? And uh, then I wanted to be that guy coming, that voice coming out of the furniture. Yeah. Making people laugh. So that begs the question. You don't appear in this film. You're the one asking the questions. You never really turn the camera upon yourself to, yeah. to answer these questions. Yeah. Why is that? Why did you choose to go down that path? Well, because I was able to get... 60, whatever the number is, incredibly famous, funny people. And I want to share everything they had to say. Yeah. So if there's 60 and it's 94 minutes, I've got about 90 seconds each. <laughs> that leaves no time for me. And also, I chose from the beginning not to ever be on camera because my opinion on all of this is the edit of the film. Okay. The film is my opinion. 
So I'm much more interested in what they all had to say about my, in answering my questions. And then I got to choose of what they said to be in the film. So that seemed like enough of my, my footprint. Yeah. I mean, I love what Michael Moore and Mr. Spurlock do, but at some point it just wasn't my, it didn't feel right okay. to be the, finally I didn't need to be the center of attention. <laughs> and I wanted to be a director, so. Yeah. Well, we have three clips, so let's showcase a, a second clip from the film. Please. And this one has Jim Gaffigan, famous comedian. Love him. Yeah. Do you know what scene we're showing? Don't. All right. Let's show He's it. in several. He's in several. Comedians, you know, you have certain laugh ears. You can hear. That's where you're listening to the audience, and that's where some, you know, new comedians, that you know, they, they bomb and they come off stage and they're like, that was pretty good. And you're like, you're, you know, they have no laugh ears, right? I, I, I just have the approach of never give them a second. Never give them a second to, uh, it's like someone's off balance. That's the best time to hit someone, <laughs> right? They're like, that's kind of, oh. <laughs> we all have friends where you, you sit there and you talk to them and you know they're just thinking of what they're gonna say. They're not even listening. That's what comedians do. You hear my laugh and you hear my voice sometimes asking questions. Yeah. I wanted the audience to feel my presence, getting a sense that it's one of the reasons that the performers and comedians and filmmakers and people in the film felt uh, comfortable and free enough to have a conversation. Yeah. So. In that regard, I'm in the movie. Okay. Now, on top of, you know, featuring comedians like, like him and like uh, a lot of the other people we've been talking about, the film also features actors and uh, filmmaker, in the case of Jason Reitman. Jason Reitman, Judd Apatow, yeah, Judd John Apatow. Favreau, James L. Brooks, Christopher Guest. Yeah, there's a lot of filmmakers. Willie H. Macy and Sam Rockwell. There Folks who aren't really considered Bobby to be Cannavale, comedians. Bobby Cannavale, who's just nuts. Yeah. Um, <laughs> What went behind that? Why did, why did you choose well, to include those it, people? Well, the, the thesis grew beyond you have to be miserable to be funny to include who chooses this life. And then at some point, my producer, Burton Ritchie, was smart enough when we were at Sundance in 2014 with just that 10-minute teaser to say, look, you know people that are going to be at Sundance. Why don't we get you a little crew? And if you run into anyone, let's get a quick interview and include it in the film if we can. Yeah. And that's literally how we stole a few moments of William H. Macy, Sam Rockwell, uh, Steve Coogan, Rob Brydon, the guys from the Trip movies, you know, Trip to Italy. And, yeah, of course. Um, and got very, very lucky. Got Jenny Slate, love her to death, and then the sound guy, hate to point fingers, but he fucked us. <laughs> Unusable hour oh, no. interview with Jenny Slate. Oh, shit. And he's got headphones on. How do you not know it isn't recording? Yeah. Oh, she's hilarious, too. Anyways. Yeah. You really hit the jackpot, that I gotta say, by including Amy Schumer, who's just blowing up this year. Amy My God. Schumer, God, amazing. I know, a... I know, I know. I'm so thrilled for her. Um, I'm so thrilled her show's back. I think it debuted last night. Yeah. Um, thrilled for Trainwreck. Can't wait to see it. Got her and Judd Apatow in the film. Uh, yeah, so I wanted to go beyond just comedians and get into the minds of people who choose, again, to be the center of attention. Or in the case of filmmaking, you've got John Favreau talking about how important the audience is. He can have a movie and the, and the studio's arguing about test screening and he'll put his foot down. If you change this, I walk. 
But if he shows it to an audience and the audience doesn't like it, he'll go back in editing and roll up his sleeves and say, anybody got any ideas? How do we fix this? Mm. So I wanted that, that, that uh, point of view of the, how important the audience is. And I, know I wanted as much of the experience as possible, not just stand-up comedy. But, um, you know, Sam Rockwell, I saw here on Broadway, a behanding in Spokane with Christopher Walken. Wow. Um, <laughs> I was going to ask you to do your impressions. So well, you me. don't have to ask. I'm here. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a dancer at heart. I kick it old school. Oh, my God. Uh, he has a film at Tribeca. Yes, he does. I yeah. can't wait to see him. Yeah. It's you, <laughs> he'll say. Uh, so I saw Sam in that play, and he has a monologue where he stands in front of the curtain and talks to the audience in the middle of the play. So I knew they, him and, and uh, Bobby Cannavale has done Broadway and, and William H. Macy and all the Mammoth plays. They knew what it was like to stand naked on a stage and try to get a laugh, even if it was written by somebody else. And there were other actors, and they weren't standing alone. <laughs> they still knew the pain of when the laugh doesn't come, which is why one of the chapters in the movie is Bombs Away and the fascination of, the, of, of bombing and how fun it is for comedians to see their friends bomb. Do you still frequently go to comedy clubs and seek out new acts to see, you know, where comedy is going? Uh, yeah, I, I love to uh, check out what's new and try to keep my finger on the pulse of it. It's impossible because uh, it, it, the amount of comedians exponentially is gotten a little insane from when I started in the late 70s. Yeah. I, can't, I wish I could give credit where credit is due, but someone, brilliant, said, you know, when I started out in the 70s and I ran into someone and they said, what do you do? And I was unknown, I would say, I'm a comedian. And they go, wow, you're a comedian. What is that like? And in the mid 80s, what we call the gold rush to stand up when it was, comedy clubs grew from 50 to 350 nationwide. And, and people ask you, what do you do? I'm a comedian. Oh, yeah? My cousin's a comedian. He says it's really fun. <laughs> and then in the beginning of the 90s, by the mid-90s, what do you do? I'm a comedian. Oh, yeah, me too. You too. <laughs> Who the hell are you? <laughs> what do you mean, you too? So now it's thousands and thousands and thousands. Yeah. Now, you really got your stand, uh, your, sorry, your, your start in... Um, Long time as ago. A, as a comic. Fire Long had just been ago. invented. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> in the 80s. So you just stood in front of the fire. It was kind of a spotlight. Yeah. You know, but a lot of people here probably know you for your film work and A Few Good Men, The Usual Suspects, Casino, <laughs> Grumpy Old Men, Grumpier Old Men. Oh, stop. Oh, I can't. I can't. The did you mention The Usual Suspects? On. Yeah, I did. Okay, of course. Good. Probably my favorite of yours. But you really kind of made a comeback, what, 2001? On the comedy stand-up Well, scene? I chose to go back to yeah. it. Yeah, why, why um, is that? Why did I you missed choose it. to, yeah, okay. You know, a Few Good Men, 1992, was uh, another goal line for me. I went from auditioning to getting offers. The movie was a juggernaut. I was the only unknown of the leads. People got to discover you. And however people discover you is how they know you. So a lot of people knew me suddenly just as an actor. Yeah. It overshadowed 15 years I'd spent doing stand-up. In fact, my second HBO special came out around the same time as A Few Good Men, completely overshadowing. Careful what you wish. And suddenly I was a dramatic actor. Yeah. And I felt like I needed to uh, get the hell back on stage and, and, um, and, and reconnect and fell in love with it all over again. And 
Was it easy coming back? Yeah, real easy. I missed yeah. it horribly. I mean, I continued to do it, but mostly corporate gigs and private gigs. And, and um, I was just so focused on, 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 on movies because it was brand new. When they start offering you shit, you have a tendency to say yes. <laughs> Consequently, I did far too many movies in the 90s. Like six of them good. Yeah. Out of 40. <laughs> Literally, like Samuel Jackson and I and a few other people. At the end of the millennium, um, everyone was putting together lists, right? And so there was a list, I think Variety or Hollywood Reporter, the hardest working actors in film, just for the decade of the 90s. And the criteria was you had to do at least three movies each year of the 90s. And I, I made that list, unfortunately. Wow. What number were you on the list? Oh, it was just whoever, whoever hit that whoever. mark. All there was right. only like eight of us. Did they host a party to celebrate your, your I success? I went over to Sam Jackson's. We had a few beers. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, we're going to open it up to the audience. So if you All have right. a question, please just raise your hand. And there's mics on either Don't end. fight. Um, you allowed this film to be a tribute to a great comedian, and I commend you on that. Will you explain the process, your thought process in doing that? I dedicated the film to Robin Williams, yeah. Well, he was a mentor of mine when I started out in San Francisco. At age 20, he had uh, become a made man from Mork and Mindy. He was already on that cover Time magazine, I think. But he chose to spend most of his time back in San Francisco where he would raise his family, ultimately, and, and it would mentor me and some other comedians to start out that time, Dana Carvey and Bobby Slayton, who's in the film. Um, and he was just a friend and appeared in that HBO special I mentioned that came out in 92 and over the years had, had really meant so very, very much to me. And when I was shooting the film, as I said, we had four consecutive five-day weeks. Whoever's available, that's who we got. And at that same time, he was shooting the television show. So it was a single camera, half-hour comedy, 12, 14-hour days, five days a week, those same four weeks. There was just no time he was available. So we got on the phone a couple of times, twice, almost an hour each time. And they ended up being these couple of friends talking about the concept of the movie, which then dovetailed into an interview and a conversation and a therapy session. Um, I didn't record them. They were private conversations. I didn't even cross my mind to record them because it was just him saying how sorry he was that he couldn't be in the movie and then go on to say how thrilled he was that I was doing the movie and what it would mean and how important it was. So when I was in editing, he passed away and... Um, while the notion was kicked around to interview some comedians that were in the movie, ask them how they felt about Robin's passing, that felt like it might be misconstrued as taking advantage of a horrible, horrendous situation. Any possibility of that made me sick. So dedicating the film to him was the least I could do as a friend and a mentor, and, and not because of the connection to his unfortunate demise. And, yeah. and, um, those of us that knew him knew he had suffered from, from depression his whole life. So, Has his family seen the film? I don't know. I haven't heard from him. Only, only some people have seen the film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Kevin. How are you? How are oh. you? <laughs> I know you said that you had a three-act structure to how you edited it. Did you have that three-act structure in your mind going into the interviews? Did you already have that planned out? Or did that come to you after you had seen a lot of the footage and then you determined, like, you know what, I can see a storyline coming through here? It only came through the process of editing. Uh, initially, I was going to book as many famous, funny people as I could. 
That was a singular goal. And then I was going to try to conduct the best interview with each of them. The reason John Vorhaus has given a co-writing credit with me is because he contributed questions that then went into a list of maybe 50 questions. And I cherry-picked which questions out of those 50 to ask each person. Without any idea of what the hell the film was going to be, I did have one truly amazing and important epiphany right before we started shooting. Uh, the head writer on my chat show and my better half, Jamie, uh, has one of those, and I think it's not a generalization to say women have this in common, more so than men, an attention to detail. Hers in this case is a genius level attention to detail. So I said, all right, you sit in front of your computer, your laptop, MacBook, <laughs> headphones, time codes sync to the sound. And during the interview, anytime the guest talent says anything of interest, buzzword, keyword, phrase, term, type it down, write the time code. So then when I was done, I would have all these notes with time codes. So then I could just look at the notes and start to feel these, these they're talking about family and mother and father. And I start to, so that was the first thing that Robert Legato and I did was try to figure out what the hell all that meant. But it wasn't until I got on my own and into that editing bay that, in my dining room. And Legato just showed me six simple steps of one-on-one editing and I was just able to collect and create transitions and moments and beats and thoughts. And that's, I showed it to a couple people and realized it needed chapters. It needed to be structured. Instead of what I thought was a natural organic flow, people wanted to know, wait, was there a topic there? And then it, once that took shape, it made sense to try to create a three-act narrative. Hey, Kevin, how are you going? Um, you said you missed... I only didn't answer you because I felt it was a rhetorical question. Okay. Um, <laughs> you said you missed doing uh, stand-up uh, when you were acting. Did, did I miss... say that? You did. You, you, did you miss being in the Play spotlight? The <laughs> or did you miss the writing? So to get back into the spotlight, you had to sit down first and actually hammer out comedy. How did you get past that? to get into the spotlight again. How did I put together the new act after taking time off? Was that the question? Yeah, kind if of. If I can rewrite your question for you? Uh, I'm just saying, uh, is, is writing a... Well, as I just proved, rewriting is everything. Right. You asked kind of a meandering, pointless question, and I, I went ahead and gave it structure and a point. And I did it in 27 seconds, so... We work well together. Do you want to take some, <laughs> some time away from whatever it is you're currently doing? And let's, let's write the next film. Yeah, um, I'm not going to tell you I'm a writer. But. Yes, well, I found from being on talk shows during the 90s, uh, Letterman and, and Carson in the first part of the 90s, and then Conan, and, um, that I had, I had remembered and shared these anecdotes from working in movies. First, I would impersonate people in the beginning of my stand-up career, Jack Nicholson or whoever, in the 80s. And then in 92, I got to work with Jack Nicholson. And I had first-hand anecdotes of working with him. So there I got to do the impression, tell people what it was really like to be on the set as a fan, first and foremost. Not me and Jack were having a cappuccino. It wasn't that, none of that nonsense. It was surreal. You know, I was a stand-up comedian with no formal training suddenly in, company of greats. 
waiting for someone to tap me on the shoulder and say, we've made a horrible error. <laughs> we meant Kevin Spacey. Can you? <laughs> uh, so that I would, I would tell the story on the talk show about working with Nicholson and do the impression of him within the story. So because seven or eight years of that had gone by, I looked back at my notes and realized, oh shit, I've got 40 minutes of material just from these real stories that happen that all involve impersonation. So instead of what if Jack Nicholson were a busboy, it might go something like this. I had structure and an act and I added another 20 minutes of fluff until I could fill it out with more and better content. Couple questions. Um, couple questions. Couple questions. Listen to you, I'm you greedy bastard. I'm not back here. Um, so There's 7,500 people here sitting behind you. You wouldn't know because you're just looking this way. But so, given that you've now structured all all of comedy and all, do you do you think you could teach comedy? Is I've comedy structured teachable? all of comedy. Yes. The best is review comedy, the film what? has got is that it, it was called a master class for anyone who is a fan of comedy. So that's the best review so far. So in answering the question, could I teach comedy? I, maybe it's possible the film can. I wouldn't want to personally teach someone how to be funny. I'd like to teach you. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm open to lessons. The other thing is, uh, do you, when you, you know, an actor is naked on stage, but I think a comedian, it, it's like stripped to the bone in, in a sense that there's no An actor is just a skeleton on stage. Yeah, just, You're not wrong. There's no other layer than, than just, you know, you there. Can there's you no more naked, yes. And you play, you've had both opportunities. So can you talk about the difference, the contrast of the, the experience for yourself or for, from what you've said? They're 180 degrees uh, apart in difference. Yeah, there's no comparison whatsoever. Uh... Acting in a film is, is, is uh, 90 seconds at most for any one take. Sometimes longer, but not, not very often. And you know you get to do many takes. And there's other people. It was just a matter of learning how to listen, which then served me well when I started doing the chat show, which was all about listening. Uh, <laughs> turns out that's all an interview has to do. It's cough up a couple of questions and then shut the fuck up. Um, so, yeah, and then it's one of the reasons I think stand-ups aren't always good actors. Because even though Jim Gaffigan talked about having comedian laugh ears, we're only listening to hear the cue that the audience agreed that that moment was funny. We're not actually listening to their point of view or their opinion or their line. And then acting is just about listening, being in the moment, and then reacting to what you just heard the other person say. And, and not being caught acting. So yeah, they're, they're wildly different. Just the difference between a carpenter and a superman. I don't know which is which. The difference between carpenter and Jesus. Hi, Kevin. The uh, film looks uh, really, really good. Can't wait to see it. I can't wait for you to see it. Thanks. Would you um, let me know when, you, when you've seen it? Sure. Okay. Um, you My did email is um, Kevin Pollack at JohnLovitz.com. You did a TV show uh, sometime in the 90s where you played the 
Don't hurt boyfriend me. of William Shatner's daughter. I think it was actually her daughter. It was an episode of a series uh, that William Shatner directed, and he asked me to be in it. Um, yeah, it was... Uh, I can't remember the name of the show. Do you remember the name of the show? It was on Showtime, I think. Yeah, I don't remember. I just remember that you got caught with making out and, and with their android maid. Yes. And I was wondering if that was some kind of punishment from Shatner for probably. teasing him all those years. Probably. Yeah, probably. I didn't realize that at the time when he called up and asked me to be in this thing that he was directing for Showtime, and he played a part in it also. I didn't realize that he was u using it as an opportunity to torture me, <laughs> which ultimately, you're right, he did. And thanks for reminding me of that whole experience. <laughs> what an asshole. <laughs> I can't believe you said that. <laughs> Thank you. It's William Shatner. Hi, uh, Mr. Pollock. Uh, Is my dad here? Oh. <laughs> you you had the opportunity to work with a variety of comedians on this, and some you had, want, know, had known for many years, and some you had just recently met. Um, was true. there anybody in particular that you had just recently met that sort of surprised you, that maybe you connected with, that you didn't uh, expect to? Amy Schumer was new to my uh, radar. Uh, instant love affair. It killed me not to be able be available to do this great sketch that she asked me to do for her new season. I don't know if I should give anything away, but it's uh, 12 Angry Men, and what we're deliberating on is whether or not she's attractive enough to be on television. <laughs> it's so scathing and brilliant that she wrote. It killed me not to be available. I was um, acting in a, a horrible movie. Uh, anyways, so she was certainly new to my radar, and who else might have been? Jenny Slate? I, I cannot, yeah, Jenny Slate too, uh, Kumail Nanjiani, who's brilliant in the movie. Um, I'd have to look at the list, to be honest with you, but there's probably a handful that were, that were not old friends or people at least I'd had on the chat show. A lot of it was people who I'd had on the on the chat show. In fact, the Tom Hanks and Larry David were pieces that I stole from their appearances on the chat show. But I was, uh, I, they were booked to be on the, the chat show while I was filming the movie over the weekend. So I had him sign a, a double release, one for the chat show, one for the film, and told them there'll be a group of questions just for the film. Those are the ones that look like shit with the black background. The rest of them, Adam McKay did a brilliant job making it look like something for a talking heads. But yeah, so there was a handful. Can't imagine the importance of this one. <laughs> Great, thanks. Um, no pressure. Yeah, the, interesting. The, um, when you? you were starting out, did you ever deal with stage fright or ever have nerves later on in your career when you were coming back? I would love to see the person that's asking the question. Wait, wave your hand. Oh, there you are. Take a bow. Oh, okay. Why? Because it's the last question? You no, know, I, I would just like to answer it from the, or to the person who was asking it. I couldn't see you. Um, and, of course, because of all that, I missed the question. Would you repeat it? <laughs> Sorry. It's about stage fright and nerves. When you were starting out, were you nervous? Or were you nervous coming back? Or have you ever had to deal Never with that? Never been nervous ever performing 
even backstage waiting to go out on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, the very first time he introduced me, there was just always a sense of excitement. Not nerves, because nerves sort of suggest, oh, I hope this goes well, or I hope it doesn't go horribly, really, is what nerves is. And mine was a sense of excitement for the opportunity. And it ha might have something to do with a natural born ham, not confidence at all. I don't want to suggest that. But just um, a lot of people in the film don't feel that way, and they, they, they do. And Dana Gould talks beautifully about having a panic attack on stage. After he'd been performing for years, just developed a panic disorder. Uh, so a lot of performers in the film do talk about this very question. For, but for me personally, it w it, it's not been an issue. Well, unfortunately, that's it. But the film premieres tonight at Tribeca. On iTunes right now. It's on iTunes right now. Right Download now. it. And it opens at the IFC Center on Friday. Yes. So be sure to check it out. Thank you so much, Thank Kevin. Thank you. Thank you.